Hello, savvy listeners, and welcome to the Savvy Girls Podcast. This is Deborah, and I am podcasting to you from New York, New York. And because I am in the Big Apple, I will have the pleasure today of going to Vogue Knitting Live 2016. So in this episode, I'm going to tell you all about my experiences at the Marriott Marquis in Midtown Manhattan. That was a bit of alliteration just for just for you. I'm planning to listen to a lecture by Amy Herzog. I plan to wander around the displays and wander through the marketplace and hopefully see a few people I know and learn something because I always learn something when I'm around other knitters. And I'm hoping that you will enjoy coming with me and having this experience with me. So grab your knitting, hop on the train. I'm planning to take the one train. You can take whatever train it is you need to get to Midtown Manhattan. And come on with me as I go check out Vogue Knitting Live 2016. Before going into the details of my day at Vogue Knitting Live, I wanted to give you a little update as to what I've been up to lately. The first big thing, or perhaps the big thing, is that I just got back from spending six weeks in Amman, Jordan, in the Middle East. I went with my work from the end of November, so from Thanksgiving, well, American Thanksgiving, to the end of the first week in January, and now I'm back, and I'm readjusting to real life, and I'm kind of glad that I missed half of winter, frankly, although it wasn't that warm in Jordan, and in fact, it was quite chilly some days, and it even snowed one day. I I snapped some pictures of the snow, because I was so appalled that it was snowing in Jordan, and on the very same day, not snowing in New York. So... However, Jordan, let me tell you a little bit about it. Just to give you a very brief picture of what it's like, Jordan is a modern Middle Eastern country and relatively moderate. Most women wear a head covering known as a hijab, but they also wear fitted clothing and their faces, they generally keep their faces uncovered. I was really busy with work, so I didn't have much of an opportunity to explore, to travel. I really regret that, in particular, that I didn't have a chance to go to Petra. But I was there to work, and work I did. I discovered some food that I particularly liked, and in particular, I liked this Lebanese-style pastry with za'atar spices, and I totally forget what it's called. But it was delicious, and I ate way too much of it. I also spent way, way, way too much time in a particular silver store that I discovered. I came home with four new silver rings that I absolutely love, and two rings for Melanie, and a gift for Savvy Mom. It was thoroughly entertaining. I generally like to shop a little bit when I'm traveling, and frankly, it's not so much... It is the buying, but I don't go overboard when it comes to buying things. For me, one of the... One of the joys of shopping in a in another country is seeing what type of handwork, what type of items people are making and the way that they're making them. And because I like to make things by hand, I generally appreciate things that are made by hand. Jordan was a little disappointing for that in that it's not a country that produces a lot. And 
so it was a little difficult to find items that were made there, but I managed this silver store was was lovely, and then I bought a few other items that uh, sort of hand-embroidered items that I rather like. Aside from that, I made good friends with some colleagues. They were n- not new colleagues, they were new-to-me colleagues, and generally l- work for the same employer, but work in a different location than I, I work in. And I concentrated on my work. I was there to help Syrian refugees, and if you've been following the news in the last months, you will know that there is a well, there's a war going on in Syria, and there are bombs falling from the sky, and it is the biggest refugee crisis of of our time. There are lots and lots of people who are in significant need. As usual, I can't give too much detail about exactly what I was doing. I try to keep work in the podcast a little separate out of respect for my employer, but I can tell you that my work involved talking to refugee families and learning about their individual experiences. They are in very difficult circumstances. The great, great majority of Syrians who have fled Syria are good people and have nothing to do with any conflicts. Those who find themselves in Jordan, for example, uh, are not, they're not allowed to work. Those who choose to work, despite the fact that they're not allowed to work, risk being deported back to Syria. And that can be a very, very dangerous thing to happen. A former high school teacher of mine asked me to do a Skype call with her social studies class to talk about the refugee population and to talk about, in general, the the, the refugee circumstance and what, what's going on there. And the kids voiced some concern about safety. So my response to them was very simple, and I wanted to share it because it's something that I think is important to keep in mind, especially with all of the concerns that I hear voiced in the news and in the political sphere. The thing is that the refugees are fleeing the very things that we are worried about. They want freedom and a life free of violence and terrorism, just like we do. I'm happy to talk more about my experiences in Jordan, but I'm going to save that for another episode. Because I want to move on and tell you what I've been involved in since I came back. I'm sure all of you know, Melanie and I are Canadian. If you've followed the news, you'll know that the government of Canada has committed to resettling 25,000 Syrian refugees before the end of February 2016, and up to 50,000 by the end of the year. So a group of knitters in Quebec started a project to knit winter hats, and in Canada we call them toques, and from now on... Anytime you hear the word toque, you'll know that that's a winter hat, sometimes called a beanie, sometimes it can be a variety of different shapes, but essentially a a knit winter hat. Anyways, this group wants to knit a toque for each of the 25,000 refugees or or even perhaps more of the refugees who are arriving. And it's also a way for knitters and crocheters to provide a warm welcome as these families come to their new home in Canada. And frankly, Canada is cold, and a handmade winter hat is very useful in the snowy months. In February in particular, it's chilly in Canada. So the project grew over the past months, and now there are collection points all across Canada, and there are a few in the U.S., and the hat tally keeps growing. And last I checked, it was around something like 5,000. Knitters from anywhere can make toques and send them in, and that's what I'm doing. I've already knit up three hats, and I can't wait to make more. I'm trying to make them both beautiful and warm in a variety of sizes, and 
the beautiful part, the warm part is pretty clear why I'm doing it. The beautiful part is, A, I like to make beautiful things, and B, a person is more likely to wear something that they like and that they feel good in than they are something that is not as attractive. And I would like that if I'm putting the effort in, I would like it to be something that a person is going to wear and enjoy and feel good in. From being in Jordan and talking to Syrian families, I found that the families tend to be quite large. And so they're going to need lots of kid-sized hats. And that's great because smaller hats are faster to knit. And I don't really have any children in my life at this point. So it's giving me a chance to peruse kids' hat patterns. And man, they go quickly. Especially if you're knitting out of worsted weight. Holy moly, a kid's hat goes really, really fast. So this project has become very important to me. Partly because of the connection to knitting and the connection to the refugees, because there are two things I've had direct involvement in, but there's actually a little more to it. While I was in Jordan, one of my colleagues was talking to a refugee family, and the wife told him that she makes and sells hats to help earn extra money for her family. My colleague's wife is a knitter also, and he made a little bit of a fuss over her and pulled me over to meet her, because he knows that I'm a knitter. I showed her a shawl that I had been wearing that day, and we chatted for a short while. And then the next day she came back and she had brought gifts. She gave my colleague and she gave me each a hat that she had made just for us. It was a beautiful and a generous gift. And it's something that I'm always going to treasure. And frankly, it's even better than if I had been able to go shopping and buying something like that in the market because it had a lot of meaning that she had made it specifically for us. So that woman and her family will be immigrating to Canada soon and is going to be one of the 25,000 people who will hopefully be getting a handmade hat. And to me, it strikes me as being very full circle. So, so far, the project, the 25,000 Tooks project, they've collected about 5,000 hats, and that's just not enough. Because I don't know when that woman and her family will arrive, but in order for me to be sure that she gets a hat... We need to send in enough hats to ensure that everybody gets one. And also because I think that everyone should get one. You can go onto the Facebook page or the website for 25,000 toques. And it doesn't matter if you're in Canada or not. This project is a way for us knitters and us crocheters to respond to negative political rhetoric, to fear and to hatred, and to show love and, and support for people who have been through very difficult experiences. And also remember, Canada is cold on now to my day at Vogue Knitting Live. The event took place on two floors of the Marriott Marquis in Midtown Manhattan. I went to a lecture by Amy Herzog, I wandered around the displays and the marketplace, and I chatted with new and old friends. So Vogue Knitting Live is a very different event from what I often attend. So I've, I go to Rhinebeck every year, I go to the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival, I've been to Stitches once... I have been attending Vogue Knitting Live since its first year, and I think that was in 2010 or 2011. 
Vogue Knitting Live is more for your urban knitter and is more friendly for perhaps a less experienced knitter. I know that it's quite expensive for vendors, so you see a lot more large yarn companies participating. And this is New York, and since this event attracts a large number of people who have a little bit of extra money to spend on luxury fibers, you see a lot of expensive yarns and tools. In the first few years, I was struck by the large number of kits, sweater kits, project kits, and the large number of novelty yarns. And in the past few years, the focus has shifted to include more independent dyers. At Vogue Knitting Live, there's a lot less emphasis on how a yarn is produced, the fiber type, or the local nature of the yarn. You also see very little by way of spinning supplies. It's not a it's not a, a spinning event. It's primarily knitting with with some crochet mixed in there. The yarns tend to be more processed. It's like the difference between going to buy your groceries at a grocery store in the middle of a city or at a local farmer's market. And while many of the products are similar, the audience and the focus is very different. The talk by Amy Herzog was absolutely wonderful. She only had one hour to give her lecture, but it was a wonderfully informative and entertaining 60 minutes. Amy graciously gave me permission to play portions of her talk, so I've picked out some of my favorite parts to play for you, and we're going to get to that a little later on. But first, I'd like to introduce you to some other yarn companies that I had the pleasure of, well, people who represent other yarn companies who I had the pleasure of talking to. We are going to talk to somebody from Crave Yarn, from Twisted Fiber Arts, from Knit Circus Yarns, and from the Neighborhood Fiber Company. And so I am very pleased to bring you those interviews. Meg from Twisted Fiber Art. Hi, Meg. Hi, how are you? I'm well. You're, first of all, you have awesome hair. Thank you very much. Your hair is purpley pink. <laughs> it's different every couple weeks. It's great. I Thank love you. the color. Thank you very much. And not only are you good at dyeing hair, you're also good at dyeing yarn, I see. Thank you. I've been at it over 10 years. I should be good at it by now. Yeah. Well, you have a whole booth full of gradients here. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about your company? I've not encountered you before, so I and I, you look like a fun person to chat with. <laughs> we do mostly gradients. We also do self-striping like for socks and wide stripes for like scarves and such. Um, we dye some roving too. Started my company 10 years ago with a baby on the hip in the kitchen just to make a little extra money. And now I have 12 employees. And we dye some pretty fabulous yarn. Where are you based? Michigan, right in the middle. And tell me about what you have in your booth here. We have a variety of luxury yarns. I dye different size cakes of yarn and different types of yarns for different size and different types of projects. So we've got some 50% silk, we've got some cashmere blends, and some superwash merino too. All right, and they're all gradients, I see, or or long. Yes, they're long all gradients. Stripes. Yep. And do you have any upcoming projects? Anything exciting going on? We have 
just had a fire in the building next door to us, so we're currently displaced. So we're looking for a new home right now, uh, and that's taking up a lot of our time. And we're trying to get to more shows and hopefully reopening our retail location soon. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you, Meg. Well, thank you. And I hope the rest of your day here is fun and exciting. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Thank you. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure. I'm so happy to finally meet Jala Spyro in person, the mastermind behind Knit Circus Yarns, yes? Oh, you're too kind, yes. Yeah, so we just have so much fun. I mean, we love doing these gradients. We just keep coming up with new dyeing techniques and new styles. It's actually kind of a joke around our studio. They're like, Jala, stop having ideas. So tell me a little bit of the history of your company, because you started with magazines, right? That's correct, yeah. So we actually started as a print magazine in the Midwest way back in like 2005. Okay. And then we expanded online. And then we got a lot of readers um, until the point where there are a lot of free patterns available right now. And so it became kind of hard to have a knitting magazine. So I decided let's switch, do something different and get into knitting and excuse me, into dyeing. So I actually took a class at the Sousier, which is a local yarn store, which we love. Okay. And then from there, I was just I was kind of obsessed with the idea of gradients and wanting to figure out how they're made. And I've actually figured out three different ways to make them. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Can you give me a little tour of what you have in your booth? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so we, we'll start over here with our um, gradient stripe socks. This is a technique that we've come up with that's a little bit insane, but it creates self-striping socks that are a gradient, but they also create short stripes, so it's just like two-row stripes. And as you go, it just keeps changing over the life of the sock. So it looks to me like you have almost two different gradient colorways going throughout, So it and this, it stripes through, so let's say one darker one, and it stripes from, say, a blue to a green exactly. from top to bottom, and then it, it alternates with maybe a lighter colorway that stripes from a yellow to an orange or something exactly. like that. So it looks a little bit like the Noro striped scarves where you right, work with two right. different skeins of Noro. So that's the, that's what it looks like to me. Is that that's what exactly you right. You have totally grasped it. So some of them are actually two gradients that are striping in different directions and different colors, and some of them are one solid color that stripe with a gradient, but the effect is very much like those um, Noro alternate scarves, and that's what we are going for. And then we've got our um, long striping gradients. We have got sock sets that are made into two matching socks, so you just cast on and go, and then each cake is exactly the same. So you have two, rather than having everything in one cake or one ball or one skein, you have them divided by two, which means that you don't have to guess when it starts and when it doesn't, right? Exactly. That looks like it makes it very easy. Yeah, so you start at the same place with each sock, and then you know that your socks are going to look exactly the same. Wonderful. What do we have over here? So this is our pixie dust, which is the sparkle yarn. So everything that we do is pretty much gradients. Then we have kettle dyes that go along with them. So these are um, a merino silk blend that have Stellina or sparkle silver woven right into them. We love those. And then right behind Katie there is the impressionists, which are another new technique that we've developed. That It's a gradient, but it also has splashes of color throughout that are kind of little pops of the different colors that you see in different parts of the skein. So that's been pretty fun. Wonderful. And on this side? So over here, there's so many beautiful gradients in here. Oh, thank you. Some, like, within the same tone, like this, within the same family, so going from dark blue to light blue, and some of them just... 
You have them all caked in a way that's really nice and easy to see the gradient transition. Oh, thanks. We try to do that. I mean, when it's in a cake, it's really easy to see how the colors change. And we have what we call the chromatic gradients, which, like you say, they start out like a really light blue and end up a really dark blue. And then we have our prismatic gradients, which can be all over the map, like yellow to orange to magenta to purple to brown. So we, we try to kind of break them up so it's easy to understand which is which. Okay, so over here, I see this is a slightly heavier weight, isn't it? Yeah, so these are um, mostly fingering, but we also have our Lavish, which is a new cashmere blend, which is almost more like a sport. So the ones that are directly in front of us are 150 grams for like a larger shawl, most of them are about 600 yards, and then the ones to the left are the smaller balls that are like about the size of a one-skein shawl or a pair of socks if you broke it up into two. Wonderful. And what do you have going on? What are you working on in your mad scientist lab? Oh my gosh, we're always working on stuff. So our new thing that is going to be coming out pretty soon is the same technique for the gradient striped socks, but for larger items. So you can have shawls that will do like two rows of one color and two rows of another and stripe in the gradient. So that's kind of the biggest thing we've got in the works. That's exciting. I can't wait to... I'm on your mailing list. I've been on your mailing list for ages now. So I'm always following... fans of you. Oh, thank you. You Love fast. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm always keeping an eye on what what new and exciting things that you have. So it's so lovely to meet you in person and best of luck. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Karita Collins from the Neighborhood Fiber Company, and we were just chit-chatting. We seem to see each other at every show, or maybe every show I go to. I'm sure you go to more than just what I make it to. But I always walk by, and I'm always really drawn in by the saturation of color of your yarns. And we were chit-chatting about what new things are going on in your, in your world, and you had started telling me about what's going on, and then I said, wait, I need to record. <laughs> so why don't you tell me, first of all, you have a new sock yarn. Yes, we have a new sock yarn. It is a blend of Superwash BFL, cashmere, and silk. And it's really sturdy because the BFL is the nice long staple. And then it's soft and wonderful because of the cashmere and silk. And I love it. And we have actually the same blend in DK and worsted. It's called Cobblestone. So it's Cobblestone Sock, Cobblestone DK, and Cobblestone Worsted. Is it sturdy enough to to wear in socks? Yes. I mean, it's not the same as having nylon, but the BFL really does make a difference. The staple length is very different than the merino. It makes a difference. Okay. And you said you've just opened a storefront. Yes. So we moved into a new location. It's in an old firehouse in Baltimore. And we're open on the weekends now because we have enough space. And it's great. You can come in, see us dyeing yarn, have a seat, sit and knit. And also buy all of the Neighborhood Fiber Company yarn you want. <laughs> and you're at many, many shows. Yes. Our next show is Stitches West. Okay. And then we'll be back at Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival. And, you know, then it starts again in the fall. We'll be at Rhinebeck again. All the Vogue, New York show. Yeah. So Wonderful. It's such a pleasure chatting with you again. You too. Thank and you for talking to me. It's, um, I, I love your sweater. What are you wearing? Who are you wearing? I am wearing Ann Weaver, the whiteness of the whale, but I call this one the brightness because it is hot pink. It is. I love it. It's um, got a little whale tail. Oh, that's 
it's fabulous. There's a lace design going down the back. That's it's quite large in scale, so it looks like a whale tail. It looks like a whale tail. I love it. This is one of my favorite sweaters that we have. And then what yarn did you make this out of? I made it out of the rustic fingering in Mondamin, which is our bright, bright, hot, hot pink. Okay, and I see it's a single ply yarn. It is a single ply merino superwash, and it again holds up surprisingly well. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Valdez from Crave Yarn and I was on my way out of Vogue Knitting Live and I got sidetracked because I looked and you have an absolutely stunning palette here of colors. Very muted, very soft and it really caught my attention. So first of all, hello Amor. How are you? Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for making us your last stop, the Mm -hmm. most memorable I hope. Uh, Well tell me about what you do. Okay, well I'm a hand dyer, all all small batches and, um, you know, in terms of my colorway and my palettes, I really I really do like the muted. There's actually so much possibility for color variation, but still with a, just enough of a, of a down note so that it's sophisticated, so the colors are sophisticated. And classy. And yeah, so That's... you're as happy to wear them to Vogue Knitting Live and show off your knits as you are to, you know, you know dinner out or some, you know, classier event. So... Yeah, absolutely. And I um, this is our first time at Vogue Knitting Live. How's it going for you? It's going beautiful. People are wonderful. I'm an online shop, so okay. as an online shop, I get, you know, very friendly interactions via email. But face-to-face is just... I love it. <laughs> it's a different experience. It's definitely a different experience. And our feet may hurt a little bit at the end of the day, but it's all worth it. Really you burn so many calories, right? <laughs> right. It's been a lot of fun. A so tell fun. me about what kind of bases, what yarns are you working with here? So we focus on fine yarns. So our newest base is actually a yak and silk blend. Huh. Yeah, which is... I mean, it's... I, I got it out of curiosity, you know, and um, it's... I, I'm sold. It really is kind of a, a mythical fiber. It's so beautiful. What is the, what are the properties of yak? So the properties. I oh, just like of yak. saying it. Just keep saying yak. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the properties of yak are um, it's very soft, like an alpaca. Um, but you know, for me personally, I'm kind of sensitive to alpacas, and I found that I can wear yak all day long. So it seems to be much more forgiving, you know, to for wear. And it's also, it kind of mutes colors a little bit, which makes beautiful, soft colorways. You know, it really is gorgeous. Um, so even the saturated colors, the deeper saturated colors, they're just soft. Soft to the eye, soft to the touch. And really, when you feel it, you feel like, you know, it's it's unnatural how soft it is. But, and our silk in that blend, and in all of our silk blends, is a mulberry silk because it's the strongest of the silks. And that really matters to us. When we're looking at our materials for our yarn bases, we really pay a lot of attention to the materials. And if we don't find it, we keep searching. And so there was a long, you know, detailed hunt before we settle on a base. So we want to offer our customers really the things that they don't want to put down, things that we don't want to put down. Um, so you have the yak fun blend. To work with in colors. Yeah. Know? So you have the la- the yak blend. What else do you have? We also have a merino and silk. So it's ultra fine merino. Um, not all merinos are made equal. <laughs> and all the mulberry silk, the mulberry silk, 
And then we have a really fantastic one, um, our one base, which is, it's a fine merino, 100%. It's a singles base, but it's a high twist singles base, so it doesn't pill. And so singles are so much fun to work with, but you want it to last. Of course. You know, and it really does kind of nip it in the bud when it comes to pilling, and that's one of my favorite bases. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for chatting. Oh, thank you for stopping by. If someone is looking to find your shop, if where can they find you? They can find me at craveyarn.com. All right. So crave, we all do it. Yarn, we all crave for it. <laughs> craveyarn.com. It's very easy to find me. And my name is Amor again. And I um, thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you so much. And on to my favorite part of the day, which was the lecture by Amy Herzog. If you're not familiar with her work, Amy is a talented knitwear designer who has become known for her focus on garment fit. She's published a number of books, including Knit to Flatter. She teaches a craftsy class on knitwear fit and has developed a wonderful tool called Custom Fit, which is an online service that allows you to plug in your measurements and gauge and then get a customized sweater pattern that should result in a well-fitting sweater. I've only actually knit one of Amy's sweaters, and that was the February fitted pullover, and all of that was before she came known as the sweater fit queen. But I'm still a big fan, and I fully intend to put the custom fit tool to the test for my next sweater knit. Amy started her talk with a discussion of fabric and swatches, and there is a lot of swatch talk, I'm going to warn you. While I know that we don't always love knitting swatches as knitters. Amy does give some pretty strong arguments as to why it's important. Here's an excerpt of what she said. My recommendation to you is that you actually start by just grabbing a ball of yarn you find completely enchanting and swatching it with no project in mind. It's really hard for us to get out of the, the mentality of swatching being an obstacle before we can do the fun stuff. Does that make sense? Yes. <clears throat> when in reality, swatching is your chance to like flirt with a yarn and see what it wants to be before you decide what kind of vacation to go on with it. <laughs> and it's easier to have that viewpoint of it if you don't have a deadline or project or goal or preconceived notions about what it should be in, in mind. Meet the yarn where it is a couple of times before you bring yourself to the pressure of having a project for it. There's something really lovely about seeing what a yarn is telling you rather than trying to make it do something that you want it to do. Your knit stitches should keep each other in line. They should be good buddies. If you stretch it out and let it go, your fabric should spring back together. This is true no matter what fiber you're using. You can use a 100% cotton with no elasticity, and the knit fabric itself will have elasticity. If you can't get a good spring out of that, go down a needle size and try again. If you can't stretch it with your super strong knitter hands, okay? You guys have really good strong hands because of the craft you practice. If you have trouble stretching it out, please go up a needle size and try again. This isn't a sock. 
You need to be able to stretch and open a cupboard. C, take your swatch, put it down on the table, mess around with a corner of it. See if you can get the whole swatch to move or if wiggling a corner of it only makes the corner move. Can you guys sort of envision what I'm saying there? If the whole thing moves just by touching a corner, what does that tell you about the fabric? It's pretty stiff, right? If you can move a whole six by six inch piece of something just by touching a corner of it. There's a lot of strength and structure and stiffness in that fabric. If wiggling your fingers in a corner makes little ripples next to where you're moving but doesn't move the whole swatch, your fabric has a lot of drape and fluidity. When you walk, it will move and swing on its own in that beautiful way because the fabric doesn't all move as a unit, it ripples. Mm -hmm. There's no right answer there. Both of them are good in some cases and both of them are bad in some cases. If you've got an all over cabled Aaron sweater, do you want something that will ripple? <laughs> not so much, right? It's, not gonna, it's, it's just gonna look weird with all the heaviness and stiffness of the cable stitches themselves. If you've got something like the cardigan that I'm wearing, do you want something super stiff? No. no. I'll look like I'm in some kind of weird parka. <laughs> right? So neither of them is right. The yarn will whisper to you, right? They want to be different things. So think about the structure of your fabric and what kinds of sweaters it will work well with. Do that before you measure your gauge. Okay, do that before you decide what pattern you're using for the yarn. Do that before you get too caught up in that daydream so that you can be honest with yourself about what you're feeling. If you want to do something exciting with this yarn, if you have a particular goal in mind, you like the sweater I'm wearing, you want to make one just like it, so you know you want something fluid, how do you choose a yarn that will match your desires? Really, the name of the game is fiber. You don't get drape by adjusting gauge. You can't make something shiny by fiddling with the size of your stitches. It won't suddenly grab motion if you just change the holes between, right? Gauge has nothing to do with how your fabric behaves, ideally. Your fabric should be strong and structured. And if you also want it to be fluid, you need to use materials that have drape and fluidity themselves. <coughs> Wool has no drape, okay? It just doesn't. It's a wonderful fiber. It is extremely kind to the knitter because wool is the obedient child. It wants to stay where you tell it to stay. If you ask it to move, it's happy to move, and then it's happy to go right back where it started without you even needing to tell it to do so. Does this make sense? When you, when you have a 100% wool swatch, it should, it should move. That structure test, you should be able to get that whole thing spinning around like a top because it's so nice and tightly tied to all of its wonderful woolly buddies. This makes it really good for the structure of a garment, but it means that you won't get this out of a 100% wool. If you want this nice fluidity in your fabric, you need to add some of the drapey fibers to it, and they are alpaca, silk, linen, 
and all of the rayon viscose bamboo family. Any of those fibers in your yarn will produce a fabric that has more drape. So if you want a fabric that has both elasticity and memory and good drape, you're looking for what? A blend. Your swatch is your chance to try stuff out and see whether it will work in a low-stress way before you've committed months and hundreds of dollars or whatever to knitting this garment. I will put on my good knitting industry player hat and say it's a good idea in all cases. <laughs> because it's right. But for sweaters, you really can't get away from it. Unless you don't care how your sweater turns out. If you don't care how your sweater turns out, and you're willing to put the months in and not like it at the end, that's fine. Don't swatch. But if you want to have some control and confidence while you're making that garment, your only chance to do that is by getting a, a square of fabric that's large enough for you to evaluate before you start. And that's the way I want you to think about swatching. It's your chance of test driving this fabric before you make a sweater. If your stitches aren't exactly the same size as the designers, but you love the fabric, there's stuff you can do. If your stitches are smaller than the designer's stitches, you can knit a larger size and have it come out the size you want in the end, right? You can knit the instructions for a 46 and get a 42 if your gauge is smaller. There, there are ways you can compensate for your stitches being a different size than the designer's. There's no way to compensate for a bad fabric that doesn't wear well. What about durability? of a fabric. I see a lot of pilling coming from a lot of sort of sweater wools. How do you have something that looks new and that lasts? If we all like soft, and we do, we are a cult of soft right now, this knitting industry, um, and we want sweaters that don't pill, what's the problem with pilling? Again, no magical yarn babies. There are basically just never any magical yarn babies. So if your sweater is pilling, that's the fiber of your sweater working its way out into the world. Eventually, if you get a lot of pilling in one area, you'll get a hole. You'll literally be wearing the fabric away. Make sense? Mm -hmm. The way that you keep a, a short staple length soft fiber like merino from pilling is to trap it in the knit fabric really tightly, which means knit it tightly. The fewer problems you'll have with unstable gauge, the better your sweaters will wear over time, the more durable they'll be, the better they'll keep their shape along the day. Like There's a lot of benefits you get out of a really firm fabric. I'll say I've taught a bunch of classes on fabric now, and the single comment that I hear from multiple people in every class when they feel my fabric is that it is exceptionally dense compared to what they typically produce with their own hands. So if you're worried about being too tight, probably don't worry about knitting too tight. Unless you can't stretch it, it's good. How large are your swatches? Ah, so your job in swatching, in addition to being um, a, a fabric sample, is to predict how big your stitches will be when you knit that sweater. Okay, I don't want you ever thinking that your job as a swatcher is to match a gauge. You can't. I know. Maybe, I mean, maybe you get the number and maybe you don't, but you can't force yourself to get a number. You can't force your hands to act a certain way 
through the course of an entire sweater. Maybe you can concentrate enough to make yourself get five stitches to the inch on the scale of a hat. I don't know, some people probably can and some can't. No one can when you're halfway through the back of a 25 inch long sweater, okay? It's just impossible. You will space out, your hands will knit how they're going to knit, and that's how big your stitches are gonna be. So that's your job in swatching, to get your hands into their groove and make your knitting spaced out in the way it's gonna be. That said, no one wants to have a soul-crushing swatch that just feels like a punishment. So what I would recommend is that you cast on between 35 and 50 stitches. Fewer than 35 and your fingers aren't gonna get into their groove, I'm sorry. You'll always be at the start of a row or the end of a row. 35 is enough to have a middle. More than 50, and I promise you'll give up after two inches, <laughs> right? I've seen so many people like try to do it right and they'll come in with these swatches that are a foot and a half wide and like an inch tall. <laughs> and you can't get good gauge information about that. So don't even try. 35 to 50 stitches, knit for five inches, bind off. Doesn't matter the weight of the yarn, because that's not the goal. The goal isn't to make it a certain size. The goal is to make it accurate. The only thing important for that is that your hands are in their groove. Yeah? Do you measure side to side, or do you measure in the center of it? It's a good question. Can I, can I sort of expand it to how and where do you measure? So what I would recommend is that you take a section to measure that's near the top of your swatch in most cases, because that's when you've chilled out, right? Close to the end. That's when it's not a new love anymore. You're sort of bored. You're waiting for it to be done. Your hands are in their regular place by the time you get to the end. So I, of that five inches, I would look at the top two inches-ish. Go ahead and take most of the width of the swatch to measure. Right? Don't go to the edges, edge stitches are weird, but go ahead and get a good number of stitches close to the top of your swatch. And then take maybe the top two, two and a half inches as your data for row gauge. I know that's not as much as you're often recommended to sample, but I feel like it's, you know, my scientific background tells me that it's more important to get good data than a lot of bad data. So after this, Amy moved on to talk about body shapes and fit. And one thing that struck me in her lecture was how body positive it was. It's not only that she says all the right things about body types and all how all shapes are okay, but she said it in a way that was also wonderfully helpful and accepting. And I am so happy to bring you an excerpt of that. You look good when you feel good. Unfortunately, that is the least helpful advice I could ever possibly give anyone. Because if we could all just make ourselves feel good in our clothes, the fashion industry would be a much poorer place. Okay? So what I'll do is try to help you understand why you might like this, that, or the other, so that you can employ those choices and that sort of reasoning when you're looking at a sweater pattern. The way you are is just 
fine. Okay, I think half of the reason that people get so, I don't know, anxious or whatever about clothes is that we feel we should be a different way than we are. And that's not true. You're fine. You're perfect. The exact way you're built is the exact way you are supposed to be built. And there's no changing it anyway, so please don't like get anxious and stressed about it, right? You're not going to be put together differently than how you are because most of the way you look to other people is based on your skeleton and its proportions rather than anything else. Your skeleton and like your genetic predisposition for where you carry any volume you're carrying. Right? I'm someone who carries all my volume in my extremities. If my weight changes, that's where the volume is coming from or going to. Does that make sense? There are some people who carry their volume here. That's not going to change also. Right? Does, this, does this make sense, you guys? Mm -hmm. That shape is what people see when they see you. We spend a very different kind of time <laughs> evaluating our own shapes for our own sort of consumption, right? That time involves a lot of side mirror viewing. <laughs> or focusing on one part that never did exactly what we wanted it to. Other people don't look at us that long or that intensely. You say hi straight on, and that paper doll outline of you is how other people think you look. Please do not get very upset about your belly, okay? I don't know what kind of madness we are in right now that people think that women don't have migratory experiences as they age and that we shouldn't have organs in there, okay? There, as someone who does not have a flat belly who is often told that I have a flat belly, other people cannot accurately see your midsection. I don't care what you think it looks like, okay? The way we relate to our stomachs is so different than what other people see. They see a front-on view. Everything we pick up is only visible from the side. Does that make sense? Some people have straight sides and some people have curvy sides, and that has zero to do with the circumference of their waist. It has everything to do with how their muscles formed. Mm -hmm. Some people's go in and some people's don't, and that's just the way that it is. So the shapes that other people think you might have, basically, if you sort of abstract us to the barest graphic design principles, there are three kinds. The bit at the top that's near the part we're focusing on when we're talking to each other and the bit at the bottom, along and around the hip level, which is sort of, if you think about talking to someone and you're, you're focusing on their face, your peripheral vision extends along and around to the top of their thighs. That's sort of the bottom of your field of vision. You actually have to look down to see someone's legs. Those two end points could be in balance, I call that proportional, or they could not in which case the top might look bigger, I call that top heavy, or the bottom might look bigger, I call that bottom heavy. This has nothing to do with circumferences, I can't say that enough. I cannot look at someone's measurements and tell what they are. Because circumferences take into account this difference, but also this difference. 
so you can have someone who appears straight as a board when viewed from the front, who's actually very curvy circumference-wise because their, their bust sticks out this way and their bum sticks out that way without any curves on the side. Does that make sense? You can have someone who looks really curvy this way whose measurements are all the same because they've got the same amount going back and front in all cases. I often get asked about an apple shape or a middle heavy shape. Please refer to my earlier statement about your stomach and how other people don't see it the way that you do. There is no such thing, okay? You, most often people who come to me saying their apples are proportional and their stomach is the part that they're focused on. They don't have something else to focus on. That's where they go. But you can have a big tum or a small tum. You can have a curvy waist or a straight waist. You can have big boobs or small boobs. Like all of that stuff can happen within any of those three body shape categories. The reason you care about that body shape and knowing what it is is that it doesn't change over the course of your life and the clothing that you wear will change its appearance different lines of clothes will change the way you look to other people. So you don't have to go to the gym a lot. You can knit instead. (laughs) And you can wear clothes that basically paint the lines you want to have on your body. So I, I would like to share a slightly embarrassing story about myself to illustrate the principle of why it's so important to know what your shape is to start. So I have a large bust sort of volume-wise, the size bra that I need, the measurement circumference of it is big. And so I read fashion magazines like just about any other teenage girl, and I realize this when I'm 15, and I spend the next 12 years of my life following the advice to minimize their appearance. Okay? Seems like a natural thing to do when you're wearing a double D or an F. That that seems a pretty clear-cut case. The interesting thing about that is That when viewed from the front, since they only go this way and my shoulders are really very broad, no one was ever seeing them to begin with. I don't actually look busty because my shoulders are so wide. Does that make sense? So I'll tell you how to use clothing to change the way that you look. But unless you really know where you're starting from, you're going to spend 12 years trying to hide something that no one could see in the first place. Does that make sense? You've got two basic knobs that you can apply to any part of your body. You can make part of your body look broad or narrow compared to other parts of your body by putting a horizontal or a vertical stripe on them. You can make part of your body appear longer or shorter than another part of your body by stretching it all in one solid piece of fabric or color or patterning or breaking it up into lots of different chunks of patterning that will shorten the appearance of some part of you. So horizontal broadens, vertical narrows, solid piece of fabric, or patternings, same piece of fabric, I guess, lengthens, lots of different chunks of different kinds of fabric shortens. For those of you who would like to long and narrow everything, it does not work that way. Okay? 
because humans are rotten at seeing absolute size. No one can tell that you look 17 inches apparent width across your shoulders today and you looked 19 inches apparent width across your shoulders yesterday. That's not the way we see. Knitters know this better than anyone, by the way. Are you ever right when you think you've reached the next set of pattern instructions? Like you're totally at 14 inches, man. And then you measure it and what are you at? 12. 12. Or 9. Or 7. <laughs> right? We, that doesn't work. You have to use them in combination. Here's where we get into the part you might take as rules. Okay? That I don't intend to be rules. I have observed that most people, most women, are happiest if their clothing makes them appear balanced and slightly curvy. So balanced and slightly hourglassy seems to be what is like the maximum happiness function across all the different women that I've seen. And so you can use these lines to take part of your body that is out of balance with the rest and bring it into balance. So if you're bottom heavy and you want to appear proportional, you broaden your shoulders to match your hips. If you're top heavy and you want to appear proportional, you broaden your hips to match your shoulders. It should be self-evident that it is always easier to broaden, okay? <laughs> You'll have an easier time broadening the appearance of something than narrowing it. If you want to appear balanced and you're starting in the proportional camp to begin with, don't mess with that. Apply broadening or narrowing in pairs. If you're in one of the other camps, don't. Put broadening elements on the a narrower part and narrowing elements on the broader part and you will, you know, presto changeo, appear proportional. There are three major parts of a sweater that have these lines and opportunities inherently as part of them. Does that, does that make sense? One of them is a neckline. So your necklines have both width and depth. Right? There's how far they reach on your shoulders, and there's how deep they reach on your torso. So a wide neckline will paint a horizontal line and do what to your shoulders? Broaden. Favorite of bottom-heavy shapes. Anecdata. If this is not how you feel, you feel the right way. Okay? Narrowing necklines tend to please top-heavy shapes more. A deep neckline takes the top part of your torso and breaks it up into lots of different chunks. What does this do? What does breaking it up do? Shortens, which does what to the bust? Makes them look perky, right? So larger busted women tend to prefer deeper necklines because it sort of lifts them visually to be close to the head. A shallow neckline will take this section of your body and lengthen it. And if your bust is visible in the sweater, that's probably not going to make you happy. So the trick is, if you have a small bust, you don't even need to worry about this, right? You get to wear the shallow neckline and your bust isn't visible in the sweater and everything's good. If you have a large bust and you want to wear a shallow neckline, I would recommend wearing a sweater that is loose here. So you don't fill it out. If you don't fill out your sweater, your bust is going to be less noticeable. Does that make sense? The, the tighter the sweater, I don't know, I don't remember how that rhyme goes. So when you're thinking about the neckline of a pattern you're evaluating, think about whether you wear anything else with that neckline and what it's going to do to your lines before you, you sort of finalize and dive in. 
There are four basic lengths of sweater. There's a short sweater, an average sweater, a long sweater, a tunic sweater. The longer the sweater, the longer the piece of fabric is going to be draped over your torso, the longer your torso will look. Sleeves are the same way. There are four basic lengths of sleeve. There's a short sleeve, there's an elbow sleeve, there's a three-quarter sleeve, and there's a long sleeve. And they all draw the eye to a different part of the body. Because the cuff of a sweater is a pretty prominent visual point, right? There's often an interesting stitch pattern or there's contrast between the color you've chosen and your skin or something like that. There's a change point. So a short sleeve will draw the eye to the bust. An elbow sleeve will draw the eye to the waist. Three quarters will draw the eye to the hips and long sleeves will draw the eye down toward the legs. finished up by talking about fit and what to focus on to ensure that a sweater looks right. One of the things that I've always wondered and wistfully admired in people is how some folks manage to wear loose-fitted garments without them looking sloppy. And I've never really understood how they do it. And Amy answered that question for me. The answer was that the garment has to fit in the shoulders. Ah, okay, now I get it. Here you can hear for yourself what Amy has to say about fit. Fit is important. It's important that your clothing fit you. And I think we've really gotten away from what that means. It doesn't mean that it's tight. Fitted is not a synonym for snug. It is appropriately sized to the body, and you can have a loose fitting appropriately sized, and you can have a snug fitting appropriately sized, but they're both fit, they both fit. If you want to make a sweater that fits you well with a minimum of effort, there are a few things you can do. You can lower the stakes in one of two ways, like lower the amount of work you will have to do to begin with. So you can use a style that is designed to be worn in a relaxed fashion. If you want a fitted sweater that really is not necessarily tight to you, but shaped the way you are, does that distinction make sense? Mm -hmm. I can wear something that's shaped the way I am that is also bigger than me. <clears throat> I've written a custom sweater pattern generator. I come from a tech background, you guys. I spent before I came to this field, I spent almost 20 years like programming systems. So I created a custom sweater pattern generator where you can put in your body measurements and your gauge from that fabric you love and get a pattern written to those numbers. So if you want a you know more precise fit with no work, that's that's the choice I have for you. In either case, the shoulders must fit well. This is the only part that, you, that is just crucial. No matter what sweater you're knitting and how low the stakes are, the shoulders have got to fit. And you can go as far from there as you want. You can add shaping, you can fiddle with this number, you can tweak that number, you can do the calculations for any sweater construction, any style. As much as you're into that, you can do it. But the only thing that's really necessary is that you have a really good fabric and it's in a silhouette that you wear and the shoulders fit you. 
If you're using a traditional pattern, I recommend that you start by choosing a size that fits your shoulders well. What I'd like you to do is observe the difference in how sloppy the sweater on the left looks. It would be even more pronounced if I was here in person. That's not a drop shoulder sweater, that's a set-in sleeve. But the seams are all the way down onto my bicep. And even if you think it looks okay in the pictures, trust me, it doesn't look gracious or elegant at all that big in person. It just looks sloppy. Okay, a drop shoulder, when the seams are here, will hang nicely that way. That's where it's most comfortable resting. But a set-in sleeve is not. It will want to move around. It looks awkward. The only difference between those two sweaters, neither of them were customized for me in any way, except that in the one on the right, I chose a size that fit my shoulders better and anchored the garment properly there. The way you do this, and I have lots of information online again about the specifics if you want them, is to take a measuring tape and put it all the way up in, as high in your armpits as it will go and take a circumference all the way around there like a bust measurement, but without your boobs in it. I call that your upper torso. Pretend it's your bust size, just for the purposes of choosing a size to begin with. Because it will eliminate whatever influence these are having on the numbers. You'll need to add ease to that number. So I'm a 38 upper torso versus a 42 full bust. So when I choose a size, I'm acting like 38 is my bust, and then I'm saying, oh yeah, but I want to put some layers under that, so I'm going to choose the 40. Or I'm knitting a drop shoulder sweater, and the ease recommendation for that is six inches of positive ease. I'll add six inches to my 38 and get a size 44 as my starting point. That's why the less fitted styles are low stakes, guys, because the ease you need to add to your upper torso is so great that you'll wind up with a size that won't require a lot of other modifications. When I'm making a fitted set-in sleeve sweater, I have to do all kinds of stuff to it to make there be enough fabric for my bust while the shoulder's still being small enough. Does that, does that make sense? I'm choosing a smaller size, so if I want it fitted, I have to add more fabric here. But if I'm choosing a size that's large to begin with, I added six inches, all of a sudden it will fit my bust too. Like if your fabric's good and the shoulders fit, I guarantee it'll be better than any other sweater you've ever done. You choose a, a style that's forgiving and it is made out of a fabric that is beautiful and you like the silhouette it paints, you will enjoy wearing it out to lunch with your non-knitting friends. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. for tuning in to this episode of the Savvy Girls Podcast. A big thank you to everyone who was interviewed today and to Amy Herzog for graciously agreeing to let me play portions of her lecture to you on the show. 
If you'd like to reach us, you can contact us through our website at www.savvygirls.ca. That's S-A-V-V-Y-G-I-R-L-S dot C-A. We're on Facebook under the Savvy Girls Podcast. We are on Twitter under Savvy Girls PCAST. You can email us at podcast at savvygirls.ca. And of course, we are on Ravelry. And you can come join us on the Savvy Girls podcast group. This was such a pleasure to have you with me. I had so much fun podcasting with you today. And I'm looking forward to next time. And in the meantime, tend to your knitting, kitten.